Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash TXH. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Hello, this is Dr. Julia Roto from the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague and breast cancer expert, Dr. Javier Cortez from the International Breast Cancer Center in Barcelona, Spain. In this first presentation, I will summarize key data for HER3-targeted therapies in lung cancer, and Professor Cortez will summarize key data for HER3-targeted therapies in breast cancer, um, which will present it at this year's ASCO in 2023. So first, uh, Dr. Cortez, there was some exciting data presented at ASCO on HER3-targeting in breast cancer. Um, could you summarize some of this important data for us? So thanks very much, uh, Julia. You are completely right. I think that at ASCO this year, 2023, we knew some more data coming from a very interesting phase two study, which was led by Erica Hamilton from Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville. And she basically presented the data of this phase two study with uh, patritumab uh, deruxtecan. This trial had three different parts. Part A, which enrolls 60 patients with HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer, part B, which aims to uh, enroll between 20 and 40 patients in different groups, patients with HER3 expression, 25 to 74%, or patients also with uh, tumors higher than 75% of positivity for HER3, and they could enroll either ER uh, low expression tumors or triple negative breast cancer also was allowed to include patients with classical ER positive tumors. And last but not least, a part Z, which will be enrolling patients with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer. And this patient will be treated with uh, uh, patritumab deruxtecan after TDXD. But this time at ASCO, what um, Erica did is to present the part A of this trial with a primary objective being to look at the overall response rate and the six-month progression-free survival. So the data were very interestingly. We observed uh, responses in patients with a higher expression of HER3, equal or more than 75%, medium, 24 to 74%, and also in patients with lower than 25% of expression of HER3. So basically, the overall response rate was 35% in these 60% of patients. I would like to remember that this was a heavily pretreated patient population. In the HER3, more than 75%, 30 patients, 33% of a response rate. Between 25 and 74, 13 patients. So small number of patients, nevertheless, 46% of responses, six patients achieved a, a, a partial response. And in, in tumors lower than 25, small, small, small number of patients, just four, two responses. It's important to remark that we didn't have the expression of 13 patients. So the key message is that overall response rate and clinical benefit rates were observed regardless of the expression of HER3. And when we looked at the activity in estrogen receptor positive uh, tumors, and in triple negative breast cancer tumors, it seems that the overall response rate was higher in those patients 
with endocrine tumors compared with those patients with triple negative breast cancer. Hormone receptor positive tumors, 29 patients, 41% of responses, triple negative breast cancer, 21% uh, of responses. So what is very interesting to observe is also that in the great, great majority of patients, we observe at least some degree of tumor shrinkage. What about adverse events? I think it's important to remind us something that we already knew. The most common adverse events were with patritumab deruxticam, were nausea, fatigue, and diarrhea. The great majority of them being grade one and grade two. Important also to remark is that when we look at a 5% of patients or higher, only grade three, four toxicities being a fatigue in 6.7%. So I think that in general, the toxicity profile was quite adequate. Only one patient developed ILD pneumonitis. In addition to this amazing study, there were also some abstracts showing the studies working or exploring different vaccines targeting HER2 and HER3. These vaccines are exploring different objectives. One of them is to look at, for example, the overall response rate in the CNS based on the neuro-oncology brain metastasis evaluation. And also some other trials are exploring the different maximum tolerated dose. I think that the key message here is that ongoing trials exploring vaccines, looking at HER2 and HER3 prime detritic cells are ongoing. And maybe in the future, they could also play a role, not only in the field of HER2 positive breast cancer, but also in the, hopefully, in the field of HER3 um, expressing tumors. So this was, I think, in my opinion, the most exciting data coming from the breast cancer type. I don't know if, uh, Julia, you can also make some comments about the exciting data that was also presented regarding lung cancer. Uh, yes, happy to discuss um, some of our HER3 updates from, from ASCO 2023 in lung cancer. And I will highlight a study here, which was presented in the developmental therapeutics section, which discusses a novel drug mechanism of action, including HER3 targeting. Uh, this is BLB01D1. It's a first-in-class EGFR HER3 bispecific EDC. Uh, so there's an EGFR and HER3 bispecific antibody tagged to a topoisomerase 1 EDC. This is presented by Dr. Zhang. Um, this was a, a classic dose escalation, dose expansion study, though a few different dosing structures, structures were considered, including weekly dosing and then ultimately Q3-week dosing schedules. And here they presented the results uh, from the dose expansion phase of the study, uh, which included all the patients in the Q3-week dosing schedules. Uh, this was a first-in-human phase one study, so it did enroll broadly locally advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, as well as other solid tumors. And we'll look at the breakdown next. And these patients were generally heavily pretreated who had failed prior standard therapy or without feasible standard treatments. And the primary endpoint here was with safety uh, and, and identification of maximum tolerated doses and recommended phase two doses. Here's the patient characteristics of those who were enrolled. So 100, 195 patients were enrolled in this study and a little over half had non-small cell lung cancer. And of those, about two-thirds were EGFR wild type and one-third were EGFR mutant approximately. Uh, but there were other patients with other solid tumor histologies enrolled as well, including NPC, a head and neck squamous cell, and small cell lung cancer. 
and uh, you can see these patients were generally quite heavily pretreated with more than half in most cohorts, particularly in the lung cancer setting, having three or more prior lines of therapy. Here's the response rates for the overall population of patients who got the Q three-week dosing and had at least one tumor assessment. You can see response rate 45.3% uh, with a median follow-up of 4.1 months. You can see the majority or, or many of the patients were still ongoing on therapy at that time. Uh, and this, we look at comparing back to other ADC data, particularly other or three ADC data, or other, other ADCs in lung cancer. Response rate 45% is certainly, um, you know, compares favorably to historical data, though difficult in cross-trial comparisons, and of course, difficult in a phase one study. Here's response rate broken down by specific tumor types. And you can see, uh, we're going to highlight the lung cancer data here, showing that in EGF or a mutant non-small cell lung cancer, response rate of 63%. In the EGFR wild type, response rate of 44.9%. Now, how that these EGFR uh, mutant uh, lung cancer uh, uh, patients, essentially all, 89% had a prior third-generation EGFR TKI, and 74% uh, had prior platinum-based chemotherapy. So again, pretreated, mostly in the third-line or later setting, but an impressive response rate of 63% for these patients. And highlighting as well, we often think at EGFR TKI resistance about acquired resistance mechanisms. So here they did present this data for 38 patients. And there was no clear association between the genomic resistance mechanism identified and the response rate or probability of response observed in small numbers. So what about safety? This is a HER3, HER2 EDC. So you expect potential both for EDC-related toxicities like chemotherapy-related toxicities and he did indeed see that the most common all-grade toxicities were cytopenias, consistent with a cytotoxic payload. We also want to pay attention to traditional HER3-targeting, EGFR-targeting toxicities, and these include things like stomatitis or mouth ulceration, diarrhea, or rash. These were seen in less than 20% of patients at all-grade and fairly infrequently at grade 3 or higher, suggesting that this was a relatively well-tolerated uh, treatment strategy uh, for these patients would also highlight that no interstitial lung disease was observed uh, on treatment uh, on these agents. So I'm going to briefly also discuss uh, uh, this poster, uh, which was a discussion of the genomic landscape of HER2 and HER3 genomic alterations in non-small cell lung cancer. So in this paper, they evaluated uh, data from 93,000 patients uh, in the Foundation Medicine uh, database and looked at rates of alterations in these two different potential therapeutic targets. And key features, one, are that there were not significant differences in the baseline characteristics among those with and without these mutations uh, in this patient cohort. Here's the, the breakdown of the data, uh, a summary, a high-level summary showing a 3.9% rate of HER2 or ERBB2 alterations split fairly evenly between mutations and amplifications. Uh, and then uh, for ERBB3, the rate was lower, 0.8%, with a little bit of a predominance of amplifications. Uh, in HER2, these matched our prior known distribution of these entities, mostly in the kinase domain, but some in other settings, including the transmembrane domain and extracellular domain. And they do highlight that a subset of these mutations, like the transmembrane domain and exon 16 mutations, don't currently fall under the, the, uh, the label uh, for trastuzumab drastican, our approved HER2-targeted agent in lung cancer though they did report a case report of activity of this agent in those transmembrane uh, mutations. And then ERBB3, these were mostly in the extracellular domain and are currently of uncertain significance or unknown significance in impact and in, 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 uh, therapeutic efficacy for these patients.
Thank you for joining us today for this discussion and updates in HER3 from ASCO 2023. And uh, thank you to our audience for, for joining us for this discussion. Hello, this is Dr. Javier Cortez from the International Breast Cancer Center in both cities, Barcelona and Madrid in Spain. Welcome to the presentation titled Targeting HER3 Next Steps. In this presentation, we will discuss some of the current issues with targeting HER3 in lung and breast cancer, respectively, and how to overcome them. Joining me today in the discussion is my esteemed colleague and lung cancer expert, Julia Rotto, from the Lower Center for Thoracic Oncology at Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Julia. So, as we all know, we have many challenges to patient selection and treatment. This still remains. It's difficult to treat some patients, how to decide which is the optimal treatment and when we should treat these patients with different drugs. Julia, can you make some comments about how to overcome this issue in the clinical practice? So when considering ADCs per patient in patient selection in clinical practice, there are a few key features. One, both the characteristics of the ADC itself, so its biological properties and how it's processed and circulates within, within the body and, and its target within the, the tumor cells, as well as its potential for use in combination therapy strategies, but also very critically patient selection. We know that for ADCs, understanding the biomarker or the need for a biomarker becomes critical. And that includes both understanding to what extent documentation or knowledge of target antigen expression matters. We know that some targets will be ubiquitously expressed and therefore a biopsy may not be necessary because you know almost all patients will be positive. It's also important to know whether the threshold for target antigen expression matters. So for example, does it matter if the target antigen is highly expressed on the cell surface or does even low level expression matter? We've seen ADCs in development that that's it, both paradigms. I think HER3 ADCs thus far, we've seen a trend towards better activity, at least in lung cancer with high level expression, but across wide levels, we've seen activity even down to very low and therefore biomarker testing with HER3 ADCs at this time has not been, been necessary within clinical trials, at least within, within the lung cancer space. Then of course, there's a the challenge of intratumoral heterogeneity. So to what extent can you accurately capture and describe the tumor biomarker landscape with a single biopsy where you're interrogating only one small area of the disease itself. If there's greater heterogeneity, it may be that the biomarker testing becomes less, less useful when trying to predict for response. So this is, this is, this is fantastic, but I, I would like to, to pick your brain up a little bit more. So you have been talking about biomarkers before. So can you tell us something about you know, issues we have with biomarker identification? Absolutely. So in some tumor types, it may be that a biomarker is needed. And certainly broadly in the field of ADC development, there will be ADCs that are going to require biomarkers. And this means the need for standardized, accurate, reproducible IHC assays to measure the presence of these biomarkers. And this is a challenge whenever it comes to IHC-based tests, where there's a skill-based and an individual interpretation uh, element to, to the testing. And here, for example, there are no current standardized, you know, approved and widely available HER3 IHC assays available in the clinic. And developing not just our understanding of the biomarker, but our ability to employ biomarkers if needed within broadly the clinic outside of major academic centers becomes quite important. We'll add that there are other novel biomarkers that are being explored for ADCs, not just single uh, target IHC expression, potentially compound scores like EGFR receptor HER3 scores, 
or other measures of gene expression than the tumor cells themselves. Uh, and certainly we've seen in preclinical settings open question whether our understanding of more specific tumor cell subtypes or tumor cell genomic status may impact our understanding of probability of response to HER3-directed therapy. This is all emerging data or, or data in development. Uh, and right now, I would like to emphasize that in our current studies, HER3-IHC, if you're using a biomarker, continues to be our, our primary biomarker in this space. So, Julia, I have a question. So, at ASCO 2023, Erika Hamilton presented very nice data with patitumab deruxtecan in patients with breast cancer, 60 patients, and it seems that the level of HER3 expression was not or, or, or did not relate with the activity we, we, we had. So do you think that or do we need any level of HER3 expression for the targeted therapy for these drugs to be effective? Yeah, I, yeah, I suspect that HER3 may be one of those targets where even low-level expression is adequate to drive a response. Um, we've seen this repeatedly in, in the lung cancer data. We see activity across a wide range of HER3 uh, cell surface expression. Uh, it also helps that the majority of lung cancers are to some extent positive for HER3, not all highly positive, but most are positive to some level. And that's why we needed to use this biomarker to guide patient selection for, for our non-small cell lung cancer uh, clinical trials. This is something that should continue to be evaluated, and I'm sure we'll see it continue to be reported as we see these larger studies um, reporting out in, in the coming, uh, coming future. So, Julia, in, in breast cancer, we are learning now from, from you, for, from specialists in lung cancer, about the liquid biopsy. And so, can you give us some perspective on when tissue or liquid biopsy is relevant? Yeah, I agree. You know, and we're learning from breast cancer when we think about IHC biomarkers and, you know, uh, cell surface biomarkers. You know, lung cancer moved very quickly uh, in the last five to 10 years to genomic biomarkers. And that's where really our story has been when it comes to selecting targeted therapies for our patients. Now here with ADCs, we're now talking about using cell surface IHC biomarkers again in the lung cancer space, at least adding them to PDL1, our current IHC biomarker in lung cancer. Uh, now, one challenge to this is the likely need for a tissue biopsy because this is a cell surface receptor. It's not a genomic marker. It's not a marker that will be shed within the DNA uh, into the blood. And therefore, liquid biopsy, as it stands right now, uh, cannot help us understand our, our expression of these cell surface targets. Uh, I'd be very interested in the future to see development of circulating tumor assays that might give us a more or less invasive way to measure the presence of these biomarkers. Where it stands right now, because our liquid biopsy is really focused on genomic profiling, right now it's not informing our use of some of these cell surface targeted therapies. We do have one exception there that I will highlight is HER2 targeted therapy. So in lung cancer, HER2 ADCs are driven by a genomic biomarker. It's not the case in HER3 lung cancer right now, where if we did use a biomarker, it'd be the cell surface target. So Dr. Cortez, uh, you talked a bit about the, the phase two study, HER3-DXD in metastatic breast cancer. One if you might be able to take us through um, our current understanding of common toxicities on this agent and our understanding of how to optimally manage those toxicities. So I think, in my opinion, Julia, it's, it's early to talk about how to manage the toxicity with patitumab deruxtecan because, of course, we are starting to learn about dealing our patients with this interesting antiviral conjugate. But we have learned a lot from, uh, uh, I would say, the brother of HER3-DXD, which is TDXD, trastuzumab deruxtecan, which has been approved uh, some time ago in breast cancer and also in, in lung cancer. And also we know from TDXD that 
uh, nausea and vomiting are some of the most common toxicities with this drug. And we have learned that when we prevent this adverse event with doublets or even triplets, we might prevent and many of our patients will not develop nausea and vomiting. So again, I think that we have to learn more about patritumab deruxtican, but with, data, with the data we are starting to see, I would recommend two things. The first one is to prevent nausea and vomiting before it happens, at least with tablets, but I would love to explore also triplets, maybe with corticosteroids, with non whatever, and also to work because I think it's very important to work in multidisciplinary teams sometimes. When a patient has lung or breast cancer, they start, unfortunately, a long journey. And it's important to realize that quality of life matters. And this is for metastatic patients, one of the most important aims that we have to, to look for. And if we fail to improve the quality of life, what we do does not make sense, in my opinion. So it's very important to consider the breast care nurses the psychosocial care, uh, I don't know, pain management, everything into account. And toxicity management is one of the biggest issues, when, at least in my opinion, when we treat patients with lung and with metastatic breast cancer. And of course, we can optimize the, 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 the journey of early breast, early lung cancer, that will be even better. So, uh, Julia, I would, I would love to thank you very, very much for your inputs, your knowledge. I learned a lot from you. And I would like to thank also the audience for listening to us today. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.